I want to welcome everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Kaylee Garrido and I head up marketing and events here at Great Data Minds. Um, GDM is a collective of passionate data activists and we're on a mission to modernize the world of data. So we do this in two ways. The first is through a full range of services for strategic planning, education, the deployment of critical data projects. And then the second is through creating all of this great data related content, just like the event that we're here to do today. So please check us out at our newly redesigned, looking fresh, but still working out a couple kinks website, greatdataminds.com. We're in the regression testing phase of that. So, you know, we're getting there. Um, all right, everybody. So this is a webinar and I know after all this, all these Zoom calls, everybody knows what that means. Your cameras and your microphones are off, but we will be manning the Q&A and the chat, which I see is already getting going. Um, and we encourage participation. We'll reserve a little bit of time at the end of the session for a more formal Q&A. So today we are gathered here to talk about data engineering, the ins and outs, and we have the experts that are going to weigh in. Um, allow me to introduce the co-founders of Tierney Data. We will start with Joe Reese, whose name I can spell. Joe is a recovering data scientist and he is the CEO at Tierney. Uh, he's a business-minded data nerd who has worked in the data industry for 20 years doing statistical modeling, forecasting, machine learning, data engineering, data architecture, and everything else in between, though that did sound like a pretty comprehensive list. And then we have Matthew Housley. He is a fellow recovering data scientist, and he's also a reformed academic holding a PhD in math and a dual master's degree in both math and physics. I'm always a little intimidated by your education. I, I do wanna admit that, Matt. I always feel that when I read your bio, I'm like, whoa, um, rocking my bachelor's degree. Same. He, <laughs> right. You guys yeah. are just fine. Like. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing okay, but we need the maths around too. We need the maths around too. Um, so he started his career as a professor of mathematics before he joined one of the largest e-commerce companies as a data scientist. And together, these gentlemen are doing some great work with their consultancy. Plus, they are running the Monday morning data chat podcast, which is very great and very consistent. I always see that on Monday morning, so that's awesome. And in addition to all that, they're wrapping up their first O'Reilly book, which is The Fundamentals of Data Engineering, and that will be due out towards the end of this year. It's quite, it's quite a rap sheet, guys. Quite a rap sheet. Thank you Thank for you. being yeah. here with us. And then um, to introduce my colleague, of course, we have Mike Lampa from the Great Data Mind side of the house. He's our Chief Analytics Officer. Mike has just a whole career's worth of experience mm -hmm. as an executive analytics practitioner, both as a consultant and as an employee in Global 100 companies. And um, I will uh, pass the floor to you, Mike, to take it away. Thank you, Kalia. Gentlemen, how are you today? Good, how are you? Um, peachy. All right, I have an <laughs> opening question. <laughs> okay. How do I know that I'm at the tipping point of becoming a recovering data scientist? Matt, you want to take that one? Yeah, yeah, I'll start. <laughs> I mean, I, I think in practice, a lot of data scientists have this experience and they either run the, the other way, which is actually not an unreasonable response, or they embrace it. And so if you embrace it, what happens is you start working on your laptop, you start building some models, but then you discover that like you don't have data pipelines to do your job efficiently. Or data. Or data. And so you start getting pulled into that side of the house and they gradually mm. are like, actually, this is really interesting work. It's critical. So I'll work on this. 
And then eventually you just end up being a data engineer, which in some cases is also a recovery data scientist. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's born from the, like, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll meet some data scientists and analysts increasingly that are maybe disillusioned with their ability to do the job they're hired for, right? right? So you're told, oh yeah, you'll be able to do like model building and all the fun data stuff that you think you're going to be doing. Then, you know, when, you, when you're doing like, when you're 12 hours into doing janitorial work on data, you know, I think it's a bit uh, illuminating. Um, yeah. you know, and you, yeah. it, it is for a lot of people. Yeah. And yeah. so I think Matt and I, we jokingly call ourselves recovering data scientists, but I think there's, it's actually quite a bit of truth to this statement. Well, and this feels like a nice, you know, kind of a segue into the, the uh, three themes that you want to share with us today around uh, for the data engineers to take heart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah let's talk about that. Yeah. Let's, let's get into them. What's our, what's our, not necessarily ordinal in, in importance, but what would be the first one of those three themes that you want to share? Yeah, I think the, the first one is, you know, um, this is it's happening across the board in data, but it's becoming a lot more, the tools are getting simpler, right? And so I would say there's, there's better practices as well. So, whereas back in the day, a data engineer would focus on, you know, um, maybe setting up Hadoop and maintaining that kind of a stack. It's just not necessary these days. I mean, if you're doing that, I guess more power to you. Don't think you need to do that these days, depending on your use case. And so um, I think a reduction in complexity and, and increasing abstraction and tooling um, is going to lead to a bigger focus on stuff like the data lifecycle, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's a really big one. Um, Matt, you want to explain the data lifecycle? Yeah. And I, yeah, we, we call this in particular the data engineering lifecycle because we, we've kind of tailored it very specifically to data engineering applications. But I think analysts and data scientists and other data consumers should be aware of it as well because it kind of underpins everything that they're going to do with data. So first of all, you have ingestion. So how much time do data engineers spend on ingestion? Still quite mm -hmm. a bit. I, I think there's a really nice suite of tools that help with ingestion now, but what happens is data engineers have to focus on the edge cases where those tools aren't available. Mm -hmm. um, next thing, and this is not strictly like sequential, but Next thing we talk about storage. And if you think about like the big developments in data engineering, like Hadoop, what was mm -hmm. Hadoop fundamentally? It was a storage system that you could build processing on top of. And so you have to have a strategy for storing your data that will also lend itself to all the other stages of the life cycle. Um, then we talk about transformation. So what are you actually gonna do with the data that's interesting to make it useful to data scientists, for example? And then the last part is serving. Serving is the last stage but we actually think it should be kind of top of mind in all the other stages. The whole mm -hmm. point is to motivate all the work of data engineering by how that data is gonna be consumed and used. And I think in the kind of peak big data era, that was one of the reasons that some of these projects failed because there was such a technology focus. Mm -hmm. would focus on like, how much data can I bring into my mm -hmm. system without thinking about how it was gonna be served, how it was going to be used, who their consumers were, who their stakeholders were. And uh, Joe, I'll let you follow on to that. I mean, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, life cycle's big. Um, and it's focusing on outcomes. I guess the old Stephen Covey quote, like, you know, begin with the end in mind, right. um, definitely holds true. And it, it should always have held true, right? I mean, we've all been in data for a while. and But it, it's easy to become enamored with the latest um, gadgets and gee whiz um, stuff. I mean, that's, that's really cool. And because you have the word engineer in your title too, you know, the temptation is to engineer all things. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I've been inside of companies as a consultant and as Kalia mentioned, as an employee, 
And so many times I had to undo the, uh, we're going to build the data data and then they'll come. Um, mm. Especially the last instance where um, the, uh, the, the director of data engineering, if you will, data warehousing decided he was just going to drop everything he could find into Hadoop. And, you know, it was a disaster because, you know, well, to your point around build with the end in mind, you have to really understand those use cases you're going to be mm-hmm. enabling so you can organize your data products appropriately. You know? For sure. Yeah. I think, it, you know, one thing we, we encourage engineers to do is, you know, work on the other side of the fence. By that mean, meaning like, you know, if you come from a data science background or an analytics background, I think it actually helps you to a large degree when you, if you become a data engineer, because you really understand what the product should look like. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know some people that say, oh, data scientists can't become data engineers because they, they don't know how to code. And I, I think, well, Matt and I are, we're data scientists and what we also know how to code. Um, right. But, mm-hmm. you know, the whole point is, you know, it, especially with tooling becoming more um, simple, like the ability to code, you're going to be coding more for the right reasons and not just coding systems just because that's what's required. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, this morning, you know, my team and I were setting up like five tran into BigQuery, right? I, I still consider that part of the data entering life cycle. It's data ingestion, storing data and then querying it, but that, you know, transforming it, but that's not, um, but I, I don't know how much, you know, systems integration was involved. I mean, five trend did all that behind the scenes. People mm-hmm. still coded it, but we didn't have to, but you know, it doesn't make me any less of a man for, you know, not, <laughs> <laughs> not doing that. So, um, you know, all the, what's that? I'm sorry, go ahead. Good. Oh, no, no, go. What were you going to say? Um, one more question around the data life cycle. Um, what about, uh, does it go all the way to the recognizing you should be decommissioning some of these data products, either mm-hmm. because they're obsolete yeah. or stale or dormant? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. Because what happens is if, if a data engineering team is focused on some data product that's not actually being consumed, even if kind of in the back of their minds, they know it's no longer useful, they're still going to get alerts. They're still going to have to invest effort into maintaining that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, deprecation, decommissioning is very helpful in terms of focusing on the things that are actually a priority. And yeah. I think dev teams understand this too, right? If you've got dead code floating around that's generating um, build problems and test problems, then you're going to be focusing on that instead of your new features. But it's always, it's always the, the, sort of the balance, right? Because you want to, um, having legacy is fine, I suppose. Yeah. You know, as Matt and I always joke, like legacy is a condescending term for stuff that makes money. Yes. So, um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you don't want to kill things just because it's old, but you want to kill yeah. things that are useless. Um, yeah. So, but old and useless um, are sometimes used in the same phrase, um, you know, in the same sentences. And I think that that's sort of the, the misnomer because again, engineers, I mean, there's, there's a tendency that want to do like data, you know, resume driven development, for example, right. Where you're just constantly focused on, well, what's going to get me my next job somewhere else, obviously not the stack I'm working on. So, you know, I, yeah, if it, but if I can work on the, the cool new stuff, then that would, you know, look more favorably and then I'll have friends and, you know, date lots of people and you know, life will be great. So, mm-hmm. um, right. yeah, but, um, right. yeah, but the, the, I think life cycle is a really big one. Um, and again, this is, it shouldn't be such a revolutionary concept, except for the fact that it, it, it when you mention it to people that are, that, you know, I think they're kind of shocked because, um, you know, it, it's one of those things that's kind of like air, like you exist within the, the data life cycle, whether you recognize it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people, I, I think, are seemingly unaware of, it, of its existence, um, the focus on maybe one aspect of it, but not thinking holistically. And I think increasingly, 
um, thinking holistically is going to be much more front and center in data engineering. So yeah, I, I'm finding as well. I, I made mention of the term data products, you know, mm -hmm. treating your data as an asset, and I, I I still get a lot of people kind of you know looking at me the cocked head. Um, what are you talking about? But you know, I'm trying to help people understand that we're building product that's going to enable value. Yeah. I think for the most part, the value is going to be generated by the end state, which you said, you know, design with the end in mind, but we have to start treating those data assets because um, they're going to start becoming part of the balance sheet and part of the valuation process yep. of organizations. Absolutely. So, yeah. All right. So, now we understand the darn life cycle out there, folks. Um, let's talk about another theme, gentlemen. Yeah, I mean, actually, what you said is a good segue into the next one. Um, you know, I think, oh, Matt, and I think data, data practices are going to become much more enterprisey, um, you know, enterprisey in quotes. Um, but what does this mean? I mean, the, the term enterprise really, um, I think, triggers people, right? Because you either think of, I mean, in a lot of cases, it's like, okay, so... Um, blue shirt and khakis, uh, you know, stale, boring, um, you know, no innovation, yada, yada, yada. But what, what we mean by enterprise, you know, all the things that, um, you know, maybe big enterprises were doing with their data um, and data products um, mm -hmm. for the longest time, things like governance, quality, um, you know, uh, data ops and so forth. And mm -hmm. increasingly these same practices and tools are available to small startups and, Kind of everyone in between. So you know the the barriers to entry are insanely low right now. I mean, the other day I was talking to a a, a data catalog company that you know mainly focuses on startups. It's a SaaS company. I was like, this is cool. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah I'm a, gosh, as you can tell, I've been in the industry for a little while. Um, if I could have had some of these tools back when I was the data architect, you know, driving out the, the target data models and writing up all the mapping specs. Oh gosh. So oh, yeah. we could have gotten done. Oh yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, data management is another one. I noticed there's a, there's a question here. I don't know how you want to handle the questions, but somebody's asking about data management and data management is actually one of the undercurrents of um, what we consider one of the undercurrents of the data engineering um, life cycle. Right. So mm -hmm. the data management is such a, a, I think an all encompassing term too. If you, if you go back to the DM book, the D data management book of knowledge, yeah. Yeah, it's a 600 page uh, committee written book that yeah. um, basically I, I felt like they just, it was a grab bag of, Oh, it's, it's also included that in data management as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, but we do consider that to be one of the undercurrents and by data management. I think what we mean is the management of data. I know that's like kind of a stupid way of expressing it, but, well, um, yeah. but it, you know, but it does encompass, I think a lot of things like quality governance and so forth. Right. So yeah. but again, it's ignored a ton. What do you think Matt? Yeah. Well, especially in the kind of peak big data era, there was this attitude that data management was like for stodgy old enterprises that weren't innovating. And then what happened is these, you know, tech companies that were doing bleeding edge things started to mature and realize that they had a huge mess, that their data was just not, it was completely disorganized. They didn't fundamentally have a purpose for serving it or data quality processes in place. And I think now that the tools have matured more, now that it's very easy to spin up like a cloud data warehouse or a Spark cluster, there's now a shift to saying, okay, data engineering also encompasses things like making sure the data is of good quality, that we can actually find out where it is, data cataloging, that we can see mm -hmm. where it came from, data lineage, all these like things that used to be considered SAGI are actually very, very high value and very important to the role of data engineering. Yeah, it's weird. Like all the, a lot of people we talk to, which is a lot of people at this point, but yeah, it's weird. Like all these um, things that were kind of written off, like, oh yeah, we don't, 
don't do that. It's boring. Now everyone's, everyone's talking about it. Data observability is a really big one that everybody's in data observability right now. I mean, I can, yeah. I can probably walk down the street and you know, my 80 year old neighbor, she's probably got a data observability company too. It's like, everyone's got a data observability company um, yeah. or data catalog company or, or something. So it's just, it's, it's hot. It's a hot space. Um, I think it's cool. So you, I'm glad you brought, brought up data observability because I'm seeing a lot of rhetoric on it. Um, mm -hmm. um, is that a component? Let's talk about data ops a little bit and yeah. understand if observability yeah. is part of the ops mantra. Yeah, um, I guess it depends. There, there's an official data ops manifesto, right? Is mm -hmm. data observability in that list? I think it is, but well, the, the concept of yeah. observability is in it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But even if you don't subscribe to that particular list, I think it needs to be a core part of data ops for everyone. And actually, Raj's other question was about burnout. I think we want to let's loop back to that in a second when it comes to data ops and observability, because I think that's a closely related question. But yeah. yeah. But I mean, if you if you go back to the the, the history of DevOps, though, right? I mean, if the, the DevOps handbook yeah. um, it was written, I think, what two thousand nine or something. I mean, that basically data observability is just applying those same principles to um, data. What are those principles? Well, uh, you know, observing and monitoring, um, you know, uh, incident response, um, those sorts of things, right? Things mm -hmm. that are traditionally done by software engineering teams that are now. Um, you know, increasingly being, uh, you know, at least I wouldn't say done, but at least I think more people are paying attention and knowing they need to incorporate these practices. What we find interesting is, is data really seems to be taking a lot of um, practices just from software engineering, right? Whether you're talking oh, about, oh, it's, it's clearly in inspiring. Yeah, like observability being the big one. I mean, how many data observability companies talk about how they would like to be the uh, data dog of data, right? Like um, mm -hmm. every one of them, and it's always their pitch. I go, to, I go to all their sites. It's like, oh, we're the data dog for data. And I'm like, you should find a new yeah. um, tagline, so. Um, <laughs> what is data observability? Help the folks understand. You know, I have I have some ideas in mind, but I'm interviewing you, and I want to hear your point of view. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, again, it, it's really the ability to to observe, um, monitor, and and respond to incidents that occur within your data pipelines, as as well as data quality issues. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's really you know, one is knowing what's going on and two is being able to, to respond um, when incidents do occur. And I think that's really the essence of observability. Um, you know, Bar Moses, she calls it, uh, you know, um, data reliability or data health. I think that those mm -hmm. are two really good ways of expressing it. Um, I think Igor from a big eye also, you know, has this notion of like data re reliability or the, you know, or the, the concept of a data reliability engineer, like that's a new mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. title that really just basically means like you're just making sure the systems and the data itself are reliable yep. for downstream processes. What, what, what do you think it is, Mike? Well, a couple of things. Um, <clears throat> the embedded test harnesses in our data pipelines, I think mm. are incredibly important um, in production. Not yep. This isn't a development concept. We got to yeah. put those things in production so that we can track any kind of drift or any kind of anomaly, you know, unreasonableness flow of, of, unreasonable flows of data. It was like, you know, by running some statistical process control checks, it's like, why did I all, all of a sudden go six deltas out of norm, right? Um, and then the other element, I believe it extends, in, observability extends into the machine learning apps as well, because I have to monitor the drift yep. of the data feeding those models. I have to monitor the drift of the efficacy of the models. Right. Um, so 
I see it really as a, as a great opportunity for people to be embedding everything you need so that you know about your data issues before your consumers know about it. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you bring up an interesting point too. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a, a third wheel. You got DevOps, you data ops, now you have ML ops, you mm -hmm. know? And so, and then, um, and when you look at the ML ops space too, what I find interesting is there's definitely some subtle differences between what, what data ops is doing and what ML ops is doing. For example, as you point out, like model drift and so forth. Mm -hmm. But really, when you, when you kind of dig under the hood, it's all tracking this, basically the same stuff. Um, and so what, what I think, you know, and this, will, this will get into our next point here, but what, what I think we foresee happening is, um, I think over the next several years, you're going to see sort of a melding, a fusion, so to speak, of software engineering, data engineering, and, and um, machine learning engineering. Because as basically, and we can get into the third, third theme here, which is fast data, as data starts moving more quickly, as you start having like streaming first is more of the um, the rule and not the exception. What that means is a tighter feedback loop between all of your systems um, and the life cycle, even zooming out from the data engineering life cycle, just the data life cycle itself becomes very uh, continuous, almost like a tornado in that sense. And so um, what, we're, what we're predicting is going to happen is basically, um, you know, moving beyond a couple of things, really. Uh, data is obviously moving, you know, towards real time. What this means is, we think the modern data stack that gets supplanted by what we're calling the live data stack. Um, and what the live data stack really is, again, it's a fusion of, of bringing, um, I think breaking down the silos between application um, data and uh, machine learning. Yeah. And really everything um, flows in a very harmonious um, cycle because they're, as you point out, people are making data products. You know, and the, another term that's being thrown around is data applications. These are fundamentally different than internal BI. Now you're talking about external facing um, products that real customers use, you know, examples might be Google or Uber, which everyone uses. Right. But those are basically just very big data products where the, yeah. the walls between software engineering and machine learning, or it's very blurry because machine learning powers that product. And so yeah. what we see happening is that that's going to become front and center. We can talk more about what the implications of that is. But. Yeah. And I think the flow is not unidirectional anymore either to your point, mm -hmm. as, mm -hmm. as that line blurs, the feedback loops are, happening all over the place too. Yeah, yeah it certainly is. And, and so this is, it's, I mean, so we have the notion of like the data engineering life cycle, but as we point out, you know, in, in the book, it, it's a lot of these stages could be sort of intermixed or there might be feedback loops within these stages. Cause as you've been in, you know, the introduction of reverse ETL, I think means it goes back to the application, but we just see that more as a sort of a bridge to probably something much more interesting going forward. Like we're fully thinking that, um, you know, there, there, there could be a case to be made where a lot of the data engineering we do right now should be um, done at the application layer. Mm -hmm. And you're basically just making uh, data intensive applications um, versus sort of having this weird um, intermediary called the data warehouse in the middle of things. Like why, if everything's moving fast, like why do you need this sort of like, uh, you know, this bottleneck here? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying it won't go away, but, you know, it might just be one component of, of um, a much bigger uh, data stack that's yet to be made. So yeah, I wonder if, if the data warehouse is. You know, I don't. Gosh, I don't foresee it going away. But I wonder if it's not going to be this ubiquitous single vehicle for, for mm. enabling analytics, especially as we get into more embedded um, machine learning based um, yep. algorithms running in the business processes, where they're yep. just doing an invocation of the model and then returning the payload and getting the results. You know, persisted back. 
Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I, there's still going to be a difference between um, transactional systems that support applications and analytics. But I think instead of having like a very discrete cutoff, throw it over the fence kind of mentality where application development does its own thing and then just kind of tosses the data over to ETL developers, data engineers, say, do, do what you want with that. It, you're going to think of these more as just separate layers. So you've got kind of your yeah. application transactional layer. And then maybe you have a streaming pipeline, Kafka, Google Cloud, PubSub, something like this in the middle. And then you have your analytics layer. And in many cases in a data app, in like a SaaS product, users are going to be able to see analytics in near real time with potentially vast amounts of data if they're handling large amounts of data with that SaaS product. And we see, we get requests more and more for these types of data applications. Mm -hmm. And I think the tools are out there to do this, but the paradigms still need a bit of... It's very immature still. Yeah. Yeah. Because what we're seeing, you know, the, the classic data warehouses, I mean, I think they're really good at what they're meant for, which is, you know, BI and that, that type of stuff. Um, historical facing analytics and large amounts of data. But, you know, as I've been writing this week, though, I, I kind of question, you know, some aspects of BI as well. What, what's the intent of doing BI, right? I mean, you're trying to take an action. You're trying to get actionable insights. But if you have fast moving data, um, at some point, why don't you just automate the actions you're going to take? You know, so it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what the future of analytics also looks like. There's, there's you know, a whole field like analytics engineering, for example, which is really cool. And I think it's opened up data to, um, you know, a lot of people who are, I think, underserved, mainly analysts. I think that's awesome. But I, I can't, you know, I've been in data and you've been in data long enough. You, you can't just say, oh, that, that this is actually, you know, this is, this is all that's going to be done from here to kingdom come, right? Like there's, it feels like there's, we're at the beginning of, of really utilizing data to its fullest potential. And mm -hmm. I think it feels like it's just getting started more than anything. So. Yeah, which is insane because how, how long have we been building balance scorecards and dashboards and, you know, whatever, um, non-actionable visualizations? Mm-hmm. That's really uh, interesting. Non-actionable visualizations. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like I, pretty as all get out, but it's mm -hmm. like, what is this telling me? <laughs> is that, is that number good? Should I be worried about it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, insane. That's uh, so, really interesting. Well, I mean, on that yeah. note though, it's interesting. I had a really good conversation with uh, Ollie Hughes um, from count.co um, and he, he brought up a really good point. Like he, he analyzed how people make decisions in their companies and it was really Mm. Analytics and BI analytics is, is really, um, it's more used to sort of ch uh, chase the status quo. But um, he said the only time you really start making the decision from data is when you're forced, when there's been an inflection point in your business, mm -hmm. right? That forces you to reevaluate stuff. Because otherwise, you're just trying to make sure things aren't changing. But that's not really a decision per se, right? That's it's more uh, babysitting. Yeah. So yeah. that was an interesting insight. But... Yeah. Thank you. No. Kelly, give me a gold coin for that one. All right. Um, <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about fast data. We, we started talking on it, um, but I want to pitch you. What, what do we mean there? Right? Mm. Hey, Matt, you want to take that? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think one of the big ideas here is that there's a lot of confusion about what fast data even is. And, and frankly, mm -hmm. some of this is kind of the vendor's fault because they all talk about how fast their product is without explaining what it does well and maybe what it yeah. does do so well. So when we talk about um, real time, what we're talking about is latency. So in other words, the gap between something happening in the real world where the real world can be the web, a website or something, someone clicks on a link, for example, someone sends an email, and then actually seeing that show up in a report. So true real time systems, you're talking seconds, something can happen, an event gets pushed to a streaming pipeline, and then you can consume it within seconds. 
The second type of performance is query latency. So how quickly can that query run? I hit enter, select whatever, and I get back a result within, you know, subsecond in some cases. Um, and so both of those capabilities are extremely valuable. It's just important that data engineers know how to explain the use cases for each, explain tools that do one or the other or both well, essentially. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then what about the concept of, um, you know, like event-based triggers or, you know, uh, the processing of change data? Yeah, so I, I think- Following the fast data as well? It, it definitely does. So uh -huh. you've kind of caught, you've got a couple of approaches to low latency data. So in other words, when I got, have an event-based pipeline and I can see things happening within you know, seconds, um, there's sort of the traditional approach. And so where you can just run a SQL query on top of that data, get statistics based on a SQL query. Um, the other type of, I, I feel like there should be a better, maybe, maybe a trigger is the right term for this, but I, I feel like someone needs to coin a better term where it's but not, not, a, not a database word. trigger. Yeah. It's, it's like a, a database it, it, trigger. Right. Yeah. It's like yeah, a it's... response to actual data arriving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sensing a, some sensing. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's sensing. I mean, maybe that's what it is, but like, mm. for example, you can have a system like Apache Flink where it sees data coming in and then it just triggers off of certain types of events or certain statistics happening where mm -hmm. it tracks a window of data for like two minutes worth of data. And it says, Hey, if this metric goes out of this bound, then I'm going to send an alert. And so this goes back to like automated decision-making, like Joe was saying, mm. you can have it, you can have a system look at like website performance, for example, track it over a two minute window dynamically. And when certain metrics say your website gets too slow within that two minute window, someone gets an alert or there's some kind of automation that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other type of event would be like change data capture, right? So that, that's traditionally yeah. um, looking at database logs, for example, um, and tracking changes in the, in the state of the data. So, you know, CRUD operations create read, update, delete type operations that occur on the data sets within a, a table or a database or a schema and so forth. And that's, um, that's very common too, right? So Fivetran does this really well. Um, HVR does this really well um, at higher volumes. I think, um, you know, that, so that's, that's, that's what's popular right now too. We see a lot of change data capture happening and, um, and which is nice because back in the day and, and people still do this a ton, you know, maybe it's just a, so an important point in time, um, data retrieval, uh, batch oriented. So I'm just going to get it from like midnight of, you know, whenever to midnight of whenever mm -hmm. else. And, and so that's very common, but if you had the choice of just getting data, you know, as it arrives and, and changes, I, I would think you'd want to maybe go with that, but yeah, just let you know, it flow. Gosh, let it flow. I can't remember how many hours we spent designing CDC pipelines mm. back in the old days. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, literally, you know, figuring out all the patterns and you know, um, doing things like calculating a hash total on each row to see mm. if something changed because I had no timestamps and stuff like that. Oh, um, wow. Crazy. Um, yeah. See, I'm, <laughs> telling you, I'm pretty old. Uh, What's funny you know, about that is we, we set up Fivetran and, like, and it got working in three minutes. Right, right. Right. And, yeah. and the other thing that's intriguing the heck out of me, I love, is change structure capture and how elegant mm, some of these mm, yeah. products are, are handling a new column showing up or an old column going away. And I don't have to worry about it breaking pipelines anymore. Right. Yeah, that was yeah. a big problem. Yep. It's all the downstream stuff you didn't have to worry about. But I think I think we're coming up with ways of accommodating that, right? Dynamic yeah. schema changes and such yeah. in the world. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, we do have a couple of questions. You guys want to entertain them? Yeah, and, sure. Yeah. 
I like questions. to go back to Roger's question about- We kind of touched on Roger's. So let's finish yeah. it off. So how is data management at large aligned or not aligned to the role of a data engineer? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's a core part of the role now. Um, in our book, we're going to talk about various types of management structures that you can use. Mm -hmm. um, I think in general, there's a move toward decentralization with accountability. So in other words, part of the reason that data management had such a rep bad reputation is that it was like a committee process. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a committee that would get together to make decisions. And that this was horrible. Like if you wanted to make a change in some table, it could take months and months to get that approved. You know, in terms of governance too, right? Like that scares people away. It's like, it I don't does. want to deal with these guys. You guys suck. Change yeah, yeah, that's right. Like the yeah. governance, it was the governance police. Whereas now I think the decentralization is that data engineers are involved in the process. Even analysts and data scientists are involved in processes of data governance, data documentation, lineage making sure that data is of high quality. Mm -hmm. So yeah, data engineers in this more decentralized vision are right in the middle of data management. How does are that fit in with, how does that fit in with data mesh, Matt? That is a very good question. I, mm -hmm. Joe wants to make this call controversial. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're going to talk about vaccines next. Um, and that's <laughs> <exciting. So. laughs> so, so data mesh is kind of a different, um, it's an extension of the notion of a cross-functional team. So when we talk about various ways of organizing data engineering, one way to do it that's very common that can still involve some decentralization, but you have a centralized organization that's a service organization and it's responsible for serving a lot of different data needs. Um, expanding the cross-functional team concept that's become popularized on the app side. So the idea with data mesh is that not only do you have like a DBA um, DevOps engineer who works in the cloud, application developers, product managers working on one team. You can also have a data engineer in the mix that handles analytics data for that team and is responsible for serving it to the rest of the company. And so they are also presumably going to be responsible for data management for that team. So data quality, data lineage, all these core competencies. Yeah, Joe, go ahead. You look like. Well, no, that's good. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, in, in, in the, the article that Zamak, uh, you know, the second yeah. the second version of the data mesh too, it was you know, yeah. there's definitely an underlying sort of cross-sectional um, uh, governance layer, yeah. right? Federated governance and so forth. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. which, which depending on the type of company you're at, will work or it won't, right? Because I think yeah. we've all seen um, if a company's really siloed, I, I just you know, uh, cross-sectional data management would be very um, interesting to see on uh, work. So. Yeah, the work we've done so far, we're seeing, I mean, there are use cases where leveraging a, uh, a mesh approach and mesh technologies um, will close a gap, but yeah. it's not a one size fit all, just like nothing else is. Right, right, right for sure. I have a, a follow on question on the data engineer themselves. Are you seeing more data, in it, data engineers also have the data architecture, data modeling skill set? Yeah, we, data architecture is another undercurrent of the life cycle that we've identified. Um, we think that even though if there are data architects at a company, data engineers should still have basic architectural um, skills, right? Mm -hmm. So knowing how to architect scalable, reliable systems, for example. But we, def we define architecture as really understanding trade-offs, right? As Neil Ford says, there's no great architecture. So there's only like the best worst architecture or something like that. So least, least worst, yeah. Least worst, yeah. Least worst, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's really apt. Um, yeah. So you really need to understand what your requirements are. Um, you know, the, what's available to you to solve those requirements. Yeah. Um, but as you say, there's nothing. It's not a one size fits all. But architecture is definitely front and center. Um, 
Especially as, as, as we identified earlier, you know, with the live data stack, um, potentially supplanting the modern data stack at some point, you know, this is understanding the architectural components of real time, for example, or batch uh, and everything else in between is incredibly important. So. Well, thank you for bringing that up because I'm worried about the, the importance of the architecture going away. No, it's incredibly important. We think it's it's going to come back. And you mentioned modeling too. We've actually been thinking a lot about this. Um, yeah. Modeling is one of those things where I think that it's, um, and Matt can touch on this too. He's got some great opinions, but the um, modeling, I think is, is sort of, it's becoming a lost art in some ways, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, you had Inman, Kimball, Data Vault, and, and some other approaches, Beam, which is sort of a, uh, you know, kind of a runoff of what Kimball was doing. But at the end of the day, what is happening is, um, you know, denormalization, um, wide tables is like sort of the antithesis. We see quite a few data engineers just going that way. Um, you know, some are doing more kind of ad hoc modeling and so forth. Um, at the same time, what you're starting to see is like the semantic layer popping up. Um, mm-hmm. So DBT just announced their semantic layer, uh, I think maybe yesterday or, or very recently. Um, mm-hmm. There's a big push in that. So that we find that very interesting, but it's kind of a step towards not really modeling, I would say, but more, you're more modeling um, maybe definitions of like attributes or, or functions, but not, maybe not a comprehensive model like you would with Kimball, for example. Mm-hmm. But what we're really excited about is um, there, hasn't been a, there hasn't been a real change in modeling for like 20, 30 years almost. Yeah, some of those, so, well, several of the principles still hold true, even though yeah. the technologies have, I will admit, the technologies have enabled me to not over-engineer my data model. For sure, yeah. Yes. And we think modeling is insanely important. Um, but what's going to happen with, with, so the question we have is, okay, so with fast data, right? Some of these things won't work. Like Kimball won't no. work mm-hmm. with streaming data. It can't. Mm-hmm. And so how, what's next? What's the next data modeling? This is something that Matt and I have been nerding out on a ton, especially as you start getting, so we, we think things like metrics layers are in the wrong, wrong spot. It's at the data warehouse level. What we're trying to think of is, okay, so what happens when you start, when the application is the one generating the data, why aren't you doing all your modeling up there if that's generating the data for all these streams anyway? You know, mm-hmm. so this is a, it's fundamentally shifting the, the, the location of modeling as well as the practice of it. You know, when we talk to people who are, um, you know, involved in streaming companies, for example, or making stream, streaming databases, we've asked them, we've asked, you know, some of, the, some of the leaders in this industry, like, what do you think about modeling? And they're like, just don't do it. Just yeah, assume, right. the, assume the application is correct. I'm like, I can't, I can't take that as an acceptable answer at face value, right? Well, and what happens is we end up, all the, all the consuming BI clients, right? All have a semantic layer. So we do our modeling yeah. in the semantic layer. Right. Now, but, you know, I'm, I I'm five, a, if I have five, sorry, if I have no. five BI tools in my right. organization, which most do, you know, I'm doing it five times. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the, the lean process junkie in me, which I, I used to you know, be a, a hardcore, um, you know, uh, you know, adherent to that stuff that drives me insane. Cause mm-hmm. I, I look at, I look at the whole value stream. Like it's, it's in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. literally in, in it's, it's literally backwards. So, um, so we think modeling is one of the most underrated skills. And we, we call this out quite often in the book. Like it's, it's definitely one of those things where, um, there's practices we, we encourage data engineers to adopt, definitely the, the batch practices. As streaming becomes front and center, we're, um, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of thinking on that because there really isn't a modeling technique for streaming right now. Data Vault sort of solves this. Data Vault was made for it, but at the same time, tell me how many Data Vault implementations you've seen in the real world. I've seen a few. Um, right. I dabbled in one um, um, 
my one observation was I created a lot more tables. Yeah, exactly. Then I had to turn around and bring them back into a star anyway, because that's what the yeah. That's exactly what, it's just a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the book, I have it upstairs, the Dan Lister book, it's like 600 pages. And I'm like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a great concept, but it's definitely, um, uh, it's hard to implement for a lot of companies. And we, we, we see the same thing. We talk to people and it's like, we tried it, it's hard. But, yep. you know, if you want to do it, go for it. Yep. What are some other questions? Raj, that was a great comment We're here. We're getting a lot of and observations. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Matt. So, so Raj just posted a great comment in the channel here. He said, with fast data, we still have to model event-based modeling. Exactly. Um, and that, that's kind of what we're thinking. Like, I, I think part of what happened and part of what's blown up this whole space in a negative way is that when NoSQL became so popular, a lot of people interpreted that as no schema. And that mm -hmm. was anyone who's dealt with that kind of a toxic waste dump knows it's a nightmare where developers are just willy nilly creating new fields all the time. Well, what do we see? Well, we saw one thing where somebody had a date as a key, <laughs> a date as a key. like a timestamp. Yeah, there you go. Totally. Well, it's going to be pretty unique, kind of unique. Huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's going to be very. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're, we're just like they're like we can't query this. We're like, I think we know why. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And, and the point is, I mean, the, the point of this um, terrible example, and I, the data engineers understood that it was horrible, is that there needs to be more integration between data engineering teams that are consuming data and application teams that are creating data. They need to, to work almost as a single assembly line, right? But going back to Joe's lean process example, in the past, the way data warehousing worked is the data was generated, it was kind of put into a shipping container and sent over to the warehouse and then you unpack it and you turn it into a star scheme and all this stuff. And the key to live data is to make that one assembly line where the data is generated in the application, it flows into a streaming system and then it flows into maybe an event-based processor. Well, yeah. In manufacturing, it's a difference between an assembly line and single piece workflow, right? So, exactly. you know, with single piece workflow, you just have a lot less um, room, you know, room for error because, right. well, and you get a lot less defects if you do something like that Yeah. Uh, versus, you know, sort of bunching everything up in batch and then hoping to God there's not a defect um, anywhere in that uh, giant pile of stuff you just created. So <laughs> it's very similar. It's interesting. What I find interesting as an aside is how many... <laughs> even DevOps, they got their inspiration from lean and supply chain, right? And yep. manufacturing. This is what I find over and over again in data is we're, we're basically, if you really want to understand where data is going, go and read supply chain books. Mm -hmm. They basically tells you all you need to know, like the goal, um, classic book. Uh, you know, there's, there's no shortage. The Toyota way, I think is a fantastic book, but um, if you look at what's happened in supply chain and manufacturing, it's literally no different than what we're trying to do in data right now. The, the practice of DevOps, it literally came from um, supply chain. Yep. So. You know, and I'll, I'll pile on top of that. When I was at Honeywell, um, I was supporting our um, oil and gas group and they built process control software that sat on top of the equipment that they were selling to their customers. So it was all sensor based, you know, heat exchangers and um, uh, catalyst converters and all that kind of stuff. And I uh, was trying to get them help with data engineers. So we, what we finally did is we gave their software team uh, a handful of data engineers based on the product releases for the year. And then I sat through their planning and then watched them execute. And I was like, oh, mm. God, this is a phenomenal process. It wasn't until I left that I stumbled down the scaled agile framework. So mm. I took that certification. And in the first 20 minutes, I was like, holy crap, this is it. We got to apply these lean principles, including data ops. Well, it was DevOps is what it yeah. went through. But so we, we spent a lot of time adapting 
a scaled agile framework for analytics. That's so and cool. I, I, I think it's a pretty good execution model for shortening our window and delivering our value faster. Did you feel like you had a superpower? I did. I did. My shirt busted open and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> it is empowering though. Cause it, it's like, yeah. it's like being able to see, see behind walls, right? Oh like gosh. You- yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the, the power of those cross-functional agile teams, you know, mm-hmm. six people knocking out product every two weeks. It was yeah. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. I wish more people would do this. I mean, just this ability to see waste, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a huge skill. Yeah. You can just walk into a situation. Like I, you know, I, I can still walk into warehouses and I can be like, that's off. That needs mm-hmm. to be fixed. Right. Like instinctively. So yeah. yeah. And data stacks, I guess too now, but um. one thing I'll add with the transition from like DevOps into data ops is that it's important to see how they're similar and it's important to understand why they're different. And this is where mm-hmm. data observability comes in because traditional data warehousing, what was the assumption? Well, the assumption was that the data was mostly your product. Um, in other words, it was de- generated by internal business processes. It was mostly pretty constrained. Yes, there were data quality issues, but they were kind of mostly in your walls. Increasingly, we have clients who might have one or 200 external data sources. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that the web itself is an external data source. You've got mm-hmm. bots generating traffic to your site. You've got all kinds of different devices hitting your site. And that's where we have to move into more of a statistical process of observability saying, you know what, data is chaotic. Data has entropy and add that into DevOps processes. Yeah, yeah. and the other similarity, they, they, because I, I heard many people, our colleagues saying, oh, we can't do DevOps, we do data. I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Yeah. You're writing mm-hmm. software to produce a product that comes out the back end, right? So that, again, re, just reinforced that whole mindset. That's interesting. Data products, yeah. yeah. But yeah, why do, you, why do you think it's so hard for people to make that connection though? Because data products, I mean, to people like us, it's just like, yeah, duh, that's what we make. So other people, it's, it's, it seems like a foreign concept. Like you're describing, um, I don't know, just like an alien well, technology. Yeah. My one thought, Joe, is 25 years of ingrained uh, art form that mm. served up. You know, I mean, I was data architect for a long freaking time and I thought I had it all figured out. Right? Mm. Yeah, but... I don't well, I, I think you hit on something of flexible thinking is I think definitely, a, you know, maybe a big, big theme too. maybe number four would just be, you know, um, just more of a, I think a need to be more flexible in your thinking because yeah. things are changing so fast. Um, like the kind of work you think you're going to be doing isn't the work you probably will be doing. And that's just a general rule in technology in general. Like who was it? Stuart Brand, um, you know, a famous uh, uh, writer and thinker in the technology space, but he, he had the concept of the uh, steamroller of technology, right? Where if you're not on the steamroller, you're getting flattened by it. Um, and that's, I think, really true. You know, I, I, we put about a two-year expiration date on any particular tech, for example, right? Like you always have to be ahead of it. But that also, with, with architecture is an interesting one, um, just because, again, I, I think to your point, you think you have it figured out until you don't. Mm-hmm. So, right. Well, and it, I think I'm hoping more and more people really understand that we do not control some significant events taking place that impact us all. So back to your point about flexibility uh, and the lean principle, assume variability and preserve options continuously. Mm -hmm. You got to continue. For sure. Even at the strategic plans for these enterprises. Oh, that's more critical than ever. (laughs) You can't have a five-year plan anymore. There's no five-year plan. You tell me two weeks ago, three weeks ago, your five-year plan just went out the window. (laughs) (laughs) And not to mention COVID. I mean. Yeah, COVID threw everything out. But yeah, I mean, you know, who would have thought we're, you know, 
gas prices, oil, the way it is, you know, today, that was, nobody had that factored in, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe you did, but you know, in hindsight, everyone says they will. Oh yeah, I did that. I modeled that for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, I wonder if anybody factored in the barge shoving its um, bow into the side of the canal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know how much it was like $500 million an hour was being lost mm-hmm. while that canal was closed. Isn't that insane? Yeah. 500 million an hour. Man. Oh, this is fascinating dialogue, gentlemen. Likewise. Um, so you mentioned a book a couple of times. What are, when can we expect this? Bad boy. Uh, you know, it's actually available on pre-order on Amazon right now. It says October. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably around there, hopefully sooner. Uh, so mm-hmm. I know our publisher is uh, making us uh, burn the mid oil to get this thing done. So more yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah. Do you have the cover queued up, Joe? Oh, thank you. The cover real quick. Um, I don't. Oh, uh, let me find but, it. I'll, I'll but, um, in a second. But the link was just dropped for it. Yeah, okay. I, did, I dropped it into the chat, the link to the book. So everybody go and, uh, you know, subscribe to O'Reilly, um, you know, get it, uh, buy 50 copies for your team. Um, <laughs> so pre-order uh, at, at full retail. That'd be great. Thank you. I'll have yeah. to, uh, get myself a copy and then invite we'll you be back. We'll, for, we'll for sign it for you. Series. Yeah. We'll oh, sign, we'll, we'll sign yeah. the, the PDF or, or the, the real one, whichever. <laughs> so. yeah, there you go. I'll sign it on my iPad. Yeah. Mike, yeah. you're in Colorado, right? I'm in Denver or uh, Dallas Denver. rather. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. You're often in Denver. I'm, I am often in Denver, yes. Well, yes. gentlemen, fascinating dialogue. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Uh, really enjoyed uh, the, uh, the time with you guys today. And thank yeah, you likewise. for taking it with us. This is great. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, anytime. Um, so we have dropped the links into the chat for the book for Tiernary Data's site. Definitely check out YouTube to see their Monday morning data chat podcast. Um, and then the final call to action is on the great data mine side of the house on uh, this Thursday is our yeah. third annual tech matters marathon. Mm. Um, we are showcasing six amazing data focused companies. Um, so please uh, check us out there. And I think that's all we got for you. This is a great conversation guys. Yeah, Thank, like, you, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. Joe, it's always Matt. fun talking with Mike. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, thanks everybody. Yeah. Cool. Have a good day guys. Yeah, have a great day. Thanks. Yeah, again. thanks to the audience. Bye-bye. All right, see ya. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Bye.